turn to the book of 1 Peter, please. Chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in this book now for a few weeks. We're going slow, I know. But I hope that as we have gone through these past, I guess it's been, this is the fifth sermon, so the past four weeks, uh, you have appreciated just the depth of doctrine, the depth of uh, exhortation that Peter is writing uh, in this letter. And we come today, we've spent a good bit of time in the first 12 verses, we're coming today to verse 13, verses 13 to 16, and we're going to notice an important transition in Peter's letter here at the very, very beginning. We are wrapping up, we wrapped up in verse 12, sort of that introductory section where Paul is introducing himself and uh, identifying the readers for us, giving the greetings, offering a word of praise to the Lord, a prayer of praise to the Lord for uh, the work of salvation he has done in their lives. And as we come to this letter now, he, as this, this point of transition, Peter has just been really focusing on uh, who we are in Christ and what we have received from Christ. He's focused on, focus, been focusing on the present benefits and the future promises of the gospel. He acknowledges in verses 6 through 9 that though they are suffering many kinds of trials, many grievous trials, God is using those trials to test the genuineness of their faith so that they might be assured of receiving what God has promised to them in salvation. That the salvation of their souls is at stake. That they have received the present benefits of salvation, there is a future aspect yet to be Receive that there is an eternal inheritance kept for them in heaven. But that is still future. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for as, as believers in Christ, as those who are following Jesus. But what does that mean for today? How do we live today when the promise of salvation is still future and when the fiery trials are, that are present right now tend to overwhelm us, especially for Peter's readers, right? That they are being overwhelmed by these fiery trials. How are they going to live when this promise of salvation is still future, but they're going through these trials right now? And so that's what Peter's going to tackle here. Again, Peter is unlike Paul in this sense. Paul usually just dumps all his doctrine in the first part of the book, first half of the book, and then the second half, he really is getting to the application, to the exhortation, how how he wants his readers to live, whereas Peter more is, is alternating back and forth between doctrine and and application, and doctrine, and exhortation. But this is we're coming here to the very first main section here of, of exhortation, the first, the first thrust of application for what they're to do now as a result of this salvation that they have been given. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Read those. You follow along in your Bible as I read out of mine. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What I want to point out here at the outset of these four verses is that Peter makes two imperatives or two commands for the church okay just going to go ahead and throw my cards on the table at the very beginning verse 13 the first imperative is to set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ that's the first thing he wants them to do set their hope 
fully on the grace that we brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the second imperative, the second command, comes in verse 15 where he says, Be holy in all your conduct. And we're going to use those two exhortations as our outline this morning. Okay? That's going to be our outline. So let's focus first on that first exhortation in verse 13, where he says, essentially, set your hope fully on eternal life. Set your hope fully on eternal life. And I'm kind of contracting there that latter part of verse 13, where Peter says again, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That last phrase there, Peter is drawing attention to the full reality of our salvation. He's thinking here about the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to His people in the New Covenant. And while we understand that repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ, at that moment when we repent and believe in Jesus, that we are truly saved, that we are really saved in that moment. We also understand that there are glorious aspects of that salvation that we are still waiting for. That there is still part of our salvation that we have yet to receive. In fact, in verse 9, Peter makes reference to this where he says that we are looking forward to obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So what Peter says in verse 13 here is that the revelation of Jesus Christ, or at the consummation of history at the very end of the age, we will receive the extraordinary inheritance that God has promised to us by grace. Grace that He manifested to us in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and sealed in His resurrection. Peter has already noted in verses 4 and 5 and also again in verse 7 when he says that we are born again to a living hope, that we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's, he's already noted this, right? There's a glorious aspect of our salvation that remains for us. And he goes further on to say that that inheritance is kept for us by God in heaven so that we might receive it at the very end of the age. At the same time that God is keeping that salvation, keeping the fulfillment of that salvation, that inheritance for us at the end of the age, He is also keeping us right now, in the here and now, by His, by His power, so that we are able to endure the severity of the trials that we are experiencing. He says that this has a purpose for us. That those trials God is working by His providence to bring us to the point that we can, on the last day, be assured that we will receive that inheritance. And Peter emphasizes again in verses 6 and 7, this is the importance of trials, why trials are so important. I know none of us would, would want to endure a trial, right? We'd all like to have the pie-in-the-sky, easy-life Christianity. But God in His providence has ordained that we endure trials so that our faith may be tested so that we might know the genuineness of our faith and thus be assured of receiving the praise and glory and honor from God the Father on the last day. So with that phrase in verse 13, the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter is really calling back the encouragement of verses 1 through 12. He is simply reminding us of what God has promised us, what is truly ours in Christ's redemptive work, and what we will receive when our salvation is fully manifest on the last day. So with the result, with the fulfillment, with the glory of salvation in mind, Peter exhorts his readers, he exhorts us through them, to set our hope 
fully on the promise and end result of our salvation. Peter is calling us to set our hope fully on the promise and end result of our salvation. I hope that by now already you are seeing that hope is a key theme in the book of First Peter. Peter first mentioned it back in verse 3 when he was reminding his readers that God had caused them and caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is these two realities, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new birth that it has caused that create and sustain hope in the life of the believer. We have hope because Christ was raised from the dead. And we have hope personally because He has caused us to be born again, to have new life, to have relationship with Him. That is the basis of hope. But what is hope, generally speaking? And this is sort of where we have to maybe parse our words a little bit, but the idea here of biblical hope is very similar to biblical faith. Hope is a confident expectation. It is the rock-solid assurance that something promised will be realized, right? So biblical hope is different from worldly hope, secular hope. Secular hope, when they have hope in something, it may or may not happen. It may or may not occur. There is no guarantee that what what you're hoping in is going to turn into a reality. But biblical hope means that there is a bona fide guarantee that what has been promised will happen. You can take it to the bank. And so what is the Christian's hope? It is the confident expectation. It is the rock-solid assurance that what God has promised us in salvation, what we have initially accepted by faith in Jesus Christ, will be fulfilled as God promised at the end of the age. And so we can summarize biblical hope in Peter's words back in verse 8 and 9 when he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the hope of eternal life with God, the hope of seeing Jesus Christ, the hope of taking possession of the inheritance that has been promised to us, the inheritance that He is keeping, it is the assurance, the rock-solid assurance that these things will be reality on the last day. That is our hope. It's not may or may not, ha- it may or may not happen. It is that it will happen. And we are confident that it will happen because God has not only promised it, but He has worked in history to make it so. And so what Peter says here in verse 13 sustains us in the midst of the fiery trials that we are enduring. That we have hope. What trials are you enduring right now? We have hope in the midst of those trials that even though those trials may be severe, they may seem overwhelming to us, they may feel like they are more than we can bear, we understand that we will navigate through that by God's grace to receive what He has promised to us in that last time. And so Peter says, because of that promise and because of the assurance of that promise. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to set our hope on something means to set, to to really to fix our, our hope upon it, right? It's, it's really to set something down so it's firmly in place, right? It is to establish something. It is to anchor something. 
So the idea here is that we fix our hope or we anchor our hope on what God has promised us in Jesus Christ. In other words, what keeps us steady and what keeps us faithful and what keeps us consistent in the Christian life is the reality of the end time salvation that God has promised for us in Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that we live this day for that day. We live today with the longing and the expectation and the assurance that that day is going to come and that what God has promised we will receive. What navigates us through the difficulty and torment and frustration and sorrows of the trials that we endure regularly as Christians is the reality of our salvation. The promise of our salvation. The imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance. The praise and glory and honor that we will receive from the Father at the revelation of Jesus Christ is the North Star of our lives. It is the guiding principle. It is the great motivator. We can endure anything today, even death itself, because we know that we have an eternal inheritance that God is keeping for us, ready to give to us on that day. And Peter is calling us then to be forward-thinking and future-thinking people. People who live today with tomorrow in view. People whose lives today are governed by the prospect of tomorrow. People whose vision is unclouded by the swirling, confusing, deceptive distractions that are incipient to this world. And so to that end, Peter advises his readers, and he advises us through them, as to how to set our hope fully on the outcome of our faith. And he gives here two qualifying exhortations for setting our hope fully on the grace that we will receive at the end of the age. So first, he says in verse 13, that we are to set our minds fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ by preparing our minds for action. We set our hope on the grace that is coming, on the full reality of our salvation, by preparing our minds for action. So Peter here is calling us to set our hope on the promise of our salvation by readying and engaging our minds Christianly. In fact, Peter here uses an illustrative word or word picture with this word preparing. And I've got a picture up there. Abby, can you get me to the picture, please? We've got a picture here of men in their garb of this day, in the, in the day and time of the Roman Empire, right? The men would wear these elegant togas, long, flowing Elegant togas. They look like dresses. That was the custom, the style of that time. They seemed to enjoy that. They probably looked fashionable back then. They certainly would have been comfortable probably in the warmer climates of this place where the air could circulate around the body. But you can imagine trying to... These, these look probably okay if you're just going to be stately and stationary and, and conversation, debate, they're teaching... But if you're trying to actually do work, if you're working manual labor, or if you're, if you're trying to get from one place to another, if you're trying to, to act aggressively, these robes, this toga would be, be an impediment to you. And so when it was necessary, they would hitch up the robe by tucking it into the belt. And to use the old King James language, they would be girding up their loins 
They're picking up those skirts. They're picking up the, the, the dress. They're tucking it into to, to the belt so that those free-flowing robes don't hinder them in their action. And what Peter says here by using this word, this word picture, he is saying that Christians must do this with their minds. We must engage our minds. We must focus our minds for the urgency of the moment. We must engage the circumstances, the noise, the deception, the distractions that we constantly confront in this present evil age. We must do so. We must engage the confusion of our world with prepared, focused, and ready minds. The noise of the world must not sway how we live, but rather we must prepare our minds so that our hope is set fully on our salvation in Christ. For it is that hope that anchors us in the midst of a deceptive, distracting, and confusing world. So when Peter says this, he means that there is a battle raging for our minds. We must engage that battle by renewing our minds to the truth. Particularly the truth of the gospel. The truth about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what God has promised us in salvation. As Paul would say in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set our minds on things above. Renew our minds. Prepare your minds for action. Well, how do we do this? How do we prepare our minds for action? I think in two ways. One is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because as Luther said, we are forgetful people. We remind ourselves of what we once were and what God has now done for us in Jesus Christ. We meditate upon the atoning death of Christ and His resurrection from the dead and the implications of that for our lives today. We remind ourselves of what God has promised to us in salvation. And we remind ourselves where history is headed. We need to think about these things. We need to fuel and strengthen our living hope by renewing our minds. That hope can only be set on the reality of the grace that is yet to be revealed when we are renewing our minds to the truth of that hope, the, the thing that our hope is anchored to. So we need to prepare our minds for action by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Secondly, we can renew our minds through engaging God's Word, regular engagement with God's Word. God's Word is His true, inspired, and infallible revelation to us. And as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, there were people who died to get the Bible to us, to preserve those texts, to translate them into our own language. Do you understand that in English, we are, we are blessed beyond comparison in America to be able to speak English because of all of the English translations of the Bible that we have, all of the, the numerous ways that we can have copies of the Bible... I mean, I know it's probably a little different here. I can't tell you how many copies of the Bible I have. I'm sure you have multiple copies in your home. I'd imagine everybody in your house has a copy of the Bible. Even if you didn't have a single copy of the Bible, you could pull out your phone and, or your tablet and you could go to all kinds of free versions of the Bible in your language you could read at a moment's notice. 
How blessed are we to have, a, have God's Word available to us. And so how do we prepare our minds for action? We are regularly engaging with that Word. We are regularly reading it and studying it. Because only by knowing and applying this Word to our lives are we able to live consistently with the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. But Peter says we need to prepare our minds for action. He also says in verse 13 that we set our minds fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ by being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. And to be sober-minded is to think clearly without any impairment or distracting influence. We often think about sobriety in our culture today in terms of alcohol and drugs, right? Someone under the influence of drugs or alcohol is inebriated. They are not sober-minded. They don't think clearly. They don't have soundness of mind. It's only when those, the effects of that drugs or alcohol have gone away that a person can have some sobriety, some clear-mindedness. So to be sober is to, be, is to have a clear mind and to think clearly without any impediment or any impairment or any distracting influence. To be sober-minded, according to Peter, then is to think in line with the truth. For it is only by the truth that we see clearly. Apart from the truth, right? Apart from a clear vision that the Lord gives to us in salvation, apart from the clear vision He gives to us through the regular illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, we can't see spiritual things or spiritual reality clearly. Scripture says that apart from God's working in our lives, that we are blinded. But because we are the beneficiaries of God's saving work, He has made us to be sober-minded. And through the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, as He brings God's Word to bear upon our minds, we continue to walk in that sobriety. Now, it's only by being sober-minded that we are able to understand clearly the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And it is only by seeing that hope clearly that we are strengthened in that hope so that we are able to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how are you setting your hope on the promise of salvation? How are you preparing your minds for action? How are you being sober-minded? I was thinking this week, there's an old adage, a disparaging adage really, about Christians, that sometimes that they are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. There certainly can be some truth to that. But I wonder if the inverse is the real problem. Because Christians aren't heavenly-minded enough, we are not earthly, any earthly good. We've become no earthly good because we haven't been heavenly-minded enough. We haven't thought much about our future inheritance, our hope that is reserved for us, the fulfillment of our salvation. In other words, because our hope is not set on the grace that is ours, we've vacillated to the noise and norms of this world. Because our hope is not fixed on that day to come, we are weak and unstable in this day, in the here and now. To live faithfully as Christians today, we need to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to set our hope fully on that grace, we need to prepare our minds for action and we need to be sober-minded. And to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and engage regularly with God's Word. And I would just say here, as I've thought a lot about this this week, I'm concerned 
that we have become more tuned in to the noise of the world today. That we've become more tuned in to the noise of the world that is full of untruth and full of deception, full of distraction, full of all kinds of confusing things. That we've become more tuned in to the noise of the world today than we are to the truth of God's Word that makes us, that prepares our minds for action and makes us sober. How quick we are to make excuses for why we can't prepare our minds for action or engage with God's Word, but yet we find all the time in the world to plug into the noise of the world. We are, find all kinds of time to plug ourselves into the distracting messages that the world is proclaiming to us. We say that we can't find 10 or 15 or 20 minutes to read and study God's Word, but we find double or triple that time when we pick up our phones or open our tablets to read all kinds of mindless things or to play games or to scroll through social media or to browse the web. We can stream hours upon hours of movies or binge-watch TV shows or watch YouTube endlessly, but we can't devote a fraction of that time to the regular discipline of reading and studying God's Word or gathering together with God's people regularly for the same purpose. And yet, we're dumbfounded, right? We're so amazed, we're confused as to why things are the way they are today. And it's because the church is sick, and our lives are a mess, and our witness is lackluster. And I'm sure that part of that problem is that we're being discipled by the world because we're plugging into the noise of the world rather than preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. We're not prepared for action. We're not sober-minded. Our hope is not set fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, I want to just exhort you this morning and encourage you to hear Peter's words in a fresh way this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will live the salvation life only by setting our hope fully on the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. The second way that we live the salvation life, Peter says, is to be holy in all your conduct. In verse 15, he makes that statement, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Makes the point there to use the word holy and to drill down this idea of holiness. And we've sung a lot about it this morning. Thank you, Bruce and Wade. Jared, for reminding us of the importance of being holy as Christians. That word holy in the Old Testament mindset indicated a separation. A holy thing was something that was set apart for other things. And that set-apartness indicated something that was unique and distinct or possessed a special quality. And so, for example, in the tabernacle, right, there was the holy place. It was the place that no one could go to except the priest. And it was there that the priests would offer their ministrations to the Lord. They would do the worship activities for the Lord there. It was a special place. It was a unique place. It wasn't something that could be done anywhere else in the nation of Israel or there even in the temple complex. It had to be done only in that room. It was set apart for that. And so when Peter exhorts his readers to be holy in all your conduct, he's calling them to live lives that are set apart from the lives of their pagan neighbors. Peter here is making a distinction between the lives of Christians and non-Christians. 
There is a difference between how Christians should live, Christians whose hope is set fully on the salvation that is theirs in Christ, and how their non-Christian neighbors and friends live who don't possess this hope. We live differently because we have hope. They live the way they do because they have no hope. But we have hope. So our lives are to be distinct from pagan lives. Christian behavior is to be distinct from pagan behavior. Peter refers to that in verse 14 when he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter is indicating here that before his readers became Christians that they were once ignorant. They lived according to their pagan and godless ways. So their former ignorance here is to be contrasted to their now sober-mindedness. Right? We're to be sober-minded, he says in verse 13, that is distinct from their former ignorance. We're to be sober-minded. Why are we to be sober-minded? Why are we to no longer walk in our former ignorance? He says because they weren't sober-minded before. They once lived in a different way. But they've been called away from that. They were once spiritually blinded and spiritually dull. They didn't know the truth. They didn't care about the truth. Their hearts were fixated on sinful things. They were deluded by the deception and temptations of the world. Their their minds and their hearts were held under the sway of the devil. And what swirls in the minds and hearts of ignorant people? The lust of the flesh. The desires of this life. In that non-Christian state, Peter says that his readers once acted according to their wicked passions. It was natural for them to do that. That's what they were. But in reminding them of the gospel in verses 3 through 12, he reminds them that they've been delivered from this. They've been delivered from their sin. God broke the powers that enslaved them to a sinful life. Like the blind man of John 9, God gave them spiritual sight to see clearly. And like the demoniac of Mark 5, God gave them sobriety to think clearly. Now Peter is calling them to live in this new way of life. Not in their former way, but in this new way. To act in preparedness of mind, in a state of sobriety. Not deluded by a passion for their former lives. To be holy in all of our conduct is to put away the conduct of our former ignorance. And to walk in the new way of life that God has set before us. Paul writes it this way in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their, their ignorance. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which is full of your, which belongs to the former manner of your life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So to be holy here, Peter says, means in part to separate ourselves from our old way of life. To no longer walk in that old way, the way that characterized our former life. To separate ourselves from our sinful desires. To separate ourselves from the lure of the world. To live in the freedom that God has given to us from breaking the bonds of the devil. 
So to be holy in all our conduct means that we no longer walk according to the passions of our former ignorance. That way of life is past. But it also means now that we walk in a new way, a sober way, a hope-filled way, a holy way. Notice that Peter gives four reasons in verses 15 and 16. 14, 15 and 16. As to why we must walk in this holy way. First, we are to walk in this holy way because we are holy. We are holy. Now, Peter doesn't say that here, but the implication runs through this passage. Just as a reminder, we are not holy because that's what we are inherently. We are not holy because we've made ourselves holy and we somehow maintain our holy status by our works of righteousness. And just the opposite is the case. We are born unholy, we are tainted by original sin, and we are radically depraved. So how is it that we have become holy? We become holy because of God's work of salvation for us in Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Peter says that we've been sanctified or made holy by the Spirit through the sprinkling of Christ's blood, that Christ's death on the cross cleansed us of all unrighteousness. It, it wiped away all of our sins. And it gave to us a new holiness, the holiness of God given to us, imputed to us. And so we're now holy people. And because we are holy people, we live in a new way. We must live outwardly according to our new inward state. A holy character must match our inward identity. Second, we must be holy because God is holy. That is what Peter really drills down upon in verses 15 and 16. He states the point twice. In verse 15 he says, but you also, uh, sorry, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then in verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That second line there is a quotation that we hear repeatedly in the book of Leviticus, right? I couldn't give you the reference because there's numerous amounts of them. Over and over again, God is telling his people in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. So Peter here says that the basis for our holiness is God's holiness. He is holy. He is set apart from all creation. He is separate from all things by virtue of His essential being and His moral character. He is perfect in all His ways, and all that He does is perfectly righteous. And so those who would relate to a holy God must also be holy. God cannot dwell with unholy people. In fact, it's one of the primary messages of the Old Testament. It's one of the essential purposes of the law to show the people that God is holy and that they are not. That the only way that they can somehow come back into this relationship with a holy God is to first be made holy themselves. But because we are in an unholy state, because our natural condition is that which is unholy, we cannot fellowship with God. We must be cut off from Him forever because He is holy and we are not. But this is where we get to the glorious news of the gospel. Why is the gospel good news? Because God has made us holy so that we can have fellowship with Him. And how did God do that? Through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus died upon the cross. His blood was shed. And it washed away our sins. It cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So that we are no longer impeded from having a relationship with Him. We can stand before Him and have a relationship with Him. Because He has made us holy with the very holiness that characterizes Him. 
So now because God is holy, we too must be holy. We must live in this holy state that He has now made for us in Jesus Christ. And if we will continue to have a relationship with God, we must live out this relationship in a holy way. If we are His people, we must be holy. If we will have the hope of eternal life, if we will have the hope of the glory of our salvation, we must also be holy. Third reason Peter gives in verse 15 is that we must be holy because God has called us to be holy. God has called us to be holy. But as He who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. God has called us into this holy holy fellowship. It's not just simply that He has done it, but He has called us to this. He has called us to salvation. He has called us to glory. We've been given a new identity. We've been given a new destiny. And it only makes sense that we would walk according to our new calling. And then finally, he says that we must be holy because we are obedient children. We must be holy because we are obedient children. Verse 14, he begins as obedient children talking about who they are, right? They have now, we've now become God's children. He has made us to be His children again through the glorious work of the gospel. God has adopted us to be His children. We are His spiritual children. And because we are His children, it is only good and right and proper for us to be obedient children. Just as I cannot permit my children to be disobedient to me in an ongoing way, that my job when they are disobedient is to discipline them, my expectation for them is to be obedient. The expectation for us as God's children is also that we will be obedient to Him. This is just the nature of spiritual authority. So what God has done in the Gospel is that He has called us to be His people. He has made us to be His people. And that it is only right and proper that we would submit ourselves to Him. We would submit ourselves to His commands. So to be holy means that we will obey God in all things, no matter what. So for Peter's original readers, there was great temptation to mute or hide or deny one's faith in Christ because of the severe persecution that they were enduring. Some were preferring a a temporary respite from suffering rather than eternity of glory. Hey, I can get myself out of this situation if I just deny the fact that I'm one of God's children. I don't have to live according to this new way, this weird way that draws attention to itself. This way in which is so different from the way that my neighbors live. Some were willing to abandon their faith or to hide their holy lives and live according to their former ignorance in order to blend in and avoid persecution. But Peter here is calling them and he's calling us to holy living. How can some, you know, I think what Peter's point here is that how can someone who has received extraordinary, innumerable benefits from God through salvation in Jesus Christ, just set it aside, set all that glory, all that grace aside for an easy life in this moment. How how can we do that? Peter says, no, you've benefited from God's mercy, His great mercy. You've benefited from His extraordinary grace. And because of that, you must now live holy lives. This is why Peter says they must set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because it is only with this confidence in that eternal grace that they will be sufficiently motivated to endure the fiery trials that they are going through. 
and live holy lives before the Lord in the present. I think this call to holiness here, this, this reminder of our holy lives, this exhortation to holiness is something that we are also lacking in our own day. Where are the holy Christians? Where are the Christians whose lives are marked by holiness? Where are Christians who are standing out from the world? We are so concerned, I think, sometimes to blend in. Because whether we don't want to draw attention to ourselves, we want to be liked, we don't want to be hated, because we want to just fit in, we've muted this emphasis on living distinct and holy lives. And perhaps we don't look holy in our lives because we have forgotten that we are holy. Perhaps we need to be regularly reminded that we are a holy people. Perhaps we need to recapture that sense of God's holiness. Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in those songs this morning to to regain that sense of that God is a holy God, that we worship a holy God, that we live before a holy God, that we are to submit ourselves to a holy God. Perhaps we need to engage more faithfully with God's Word to be reminded of how we ought to live. Perhaps we don't live holy lives because we don't know how to live holy. We don't know what God requires of us because we don't open up God's Word and remind ourselves of the commands and expectations He has for our lives. We need to hear this ancient message in a fresh way because we are so tempted in our day and age to be like the world. We don't stand out. We are not distinct. But God has called us out from the world. And one day, we will be called out from the world to take possession of our inheritance. And because of that, we need to live holy lives today that foreshadow that future separation. What an extraordinary gift that we've been given, brothers and sisters. What extraordinary grace and kindness that God has given to us. We've been born again to a living hope. We have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept for us in heaven. We will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our soul. So how do we live in this salvation? We set our hope fully on it preparing our minds and being sober-minded so that we live according to it. And we walk in a holy way in all our conduct because God is holy, He has made us holy, and He has called us to this holy way. May God help us. May God help us to live this salvation life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful, as always, each week for Your Word. And Lord, we're thankful for the regularity with which we meet, that every Lord's Day we gather together to open this Word because we need to hear it. As Tim prayed, Father, we are constantly being thrown off kilter by all that we hear and face in the world, whether it's personal, whether it's through personal trials or personal relationships or all the things that we are confronted in through the noise of the world and the various media that we consume and, 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 and those things like that, Father. And so I pray today that you would help us to recapture that sense of a holy vision for our lives, that we would set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that our lives today will be lived in view of that reality. 
Help us, Father. Help us repair our minds for action. Help us be sober-minded. We pray that in that you would glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.